0: Friends, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Over the last several weeks, we've been exploring together the attributes of the love of God and seeing even that God is love. That's His very nature. We all know that the evil one is constantly working to cast a cloud over the kindness of God and to paint... Our Heavenly Father as harsh or cruel, but we keep seeing that the Lord abounds in steadfast love for His people. Now, we all know that those are truths, plain, from the Word of God, and they are repeated with persistence. But our problem is we all have prone to wonder hearts, and we struggle to embrace these things. We are not receiving our privileges as we should be, and how love has been demonstrably shown to us in the giving of Christ. So as we've reflected in this series, we've looked at a handful of things on the love of our God, how His love is unconditional, how His love is everlasting, how His love is extravagant, as we were told last week from Isaiah 43. I love you and have given men ultimately given Christ in exchange for your life. And this morning we come to perhaps the most famous declaration of the love of God in Romans 8. We're going to look together at verses 35 to 39, but I want to read the whole paragraph. Let me pray, and then we'll read together. Father in heaven, we come in recognition of our need for Your Spirit's work to instruct us in the truth, Lord, we pray that You would be pleased to open our eyes to what You're saying to us here, to have our ears receive it, our hearts welcome the Word. We pray that Your promises would take root in our souls and lead to the bearing of fruit in the way that we live. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Again, we'll start in verse 31 in our reading. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? them, please be seated. <clears throat> well, the extravagant love of our God not only is seen in a text like Isaiah 43, it's seen most strikingly, I think, here in Romans 8, particularly in verse 32. The Father doesn't spare His own Son, but gives Him over for us. And yet, Paul in this section is examining significant Pastoral questions, and it culminates with a fourth question, and it's this: Are there things that can yet sever us from God's love? Now we all know the devil would certainly want us to believe that, that all the floods and fires we face in this world prove to us that we are forsaken. Indeed, according to Satan in our own sinful flesh, Receiving tribulation should be lodged as evidence that God no longer has affection for us. But Paul here presses to our hearts the unchangeable love of God in all of these situations. And he argues that God's commitment to us does not mean we are without adversaries. No, our enemies are legion. The powers over this present darkness, the prowling devil and the sons of disobedience in whom Satan is working. They all oppose us. Our enemies abound. So what's the proof, Paul, that in the midst of this war, God is truly for us? Well, the evidence again is that God gave His own Son. He spared Him not for our salvation. That Christ bore our condemnation and ascended to the right hand of God raised in glory. Furthermore, Jesus reigns. He's defeated death, and from His throne, He prays for us. But while the victory of Christ over hostile powers is certain, still, in the face of ongoing, intense, and at times mortal danger, the frail children of God threaten to stumble in the sea of our troubles. We are a weak people with a fledgling faith. So knowing that Jesus told His people, in this world you have tribulation, Paul then asks the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Paul is anticipating a question in our hearts, and it's this. If I'm experiencing this horrible thing, this distress, is the love of Jesus lost to me? Is the horror that I presently face proof that I have been cast off? The answer to the questions is no. But Paul goes to great detail to explain it. We're going to see three things as we hear his explanation. And we first want to see the dangers we face. The dangers we face. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, Paul ups the ante a bit by giving us a list of potential candidates which may be interpreted as evidence of the waning of Christ's love or the loss of the love of Christ to us altogether. And he asks, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, will these things rip us away from Jesus? Now you need to note here that Paul poses seven potential Love-severing proofs. Now obviously, Paul is not giving you seven of them because there are only seven possible separators. The seven are representative of the complete array of powers that could theoretically cut us off from God's love in Christ. And I want us to think about each of the seven. The first possible separator is tribulation. The word literally means pressure it pictures a strong squeezing like the treading of grapes pressing them so that they rupture. And that's often how Christians feel. We feel like we're being squeezed as though we're in a vice. This word is quite general and it can describe all kinds of situations. The general hostility of the world, John 16. Or false accusations against a believer, Acts 7. Imprisonment. Philippians 1, poverty, 2 Corinthians 8, the decaying of the outer man, 2 Corinthians 4, and even anguish of heart. So the question is, with all of these tribulations, both of the inner and outer man, as the world squeezes us, are we cut off from Christ's love? Will His love be severed because these tribulations drag us into darkness Beyond the felt power of His grace. And I really want to emphasize that. Beyond the felt power of His grace. Have you ever been in a tribulation to such a degree that you don't feel the love of God? Are you then cut off because you don't feel it? What of distress, secondly? This word means literally a narrow space. And when it's used together with tribulation, the one pictures external forces squeezing us and distress points to internal strain such as deep-seated anxieties and fears and inward battle. Anyone here struggle with anxiety? Will these things, will the inward assaults of the evil one, his fiery darts shot at me, or will my own sinful choices that have produced anxiety, or even when I stand fast for Christ and it's brought me into emotional distress, will that cut me off from the love of Jesus? These two words, uh, tribulation and distress, graphically portray, I think, Paul's own situation in 2 Corinthians 1. He, he speaks of a time in Asia when affliction came upon him in Timothy and he says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired even of life itself. Despairing of life itself. Now we know that God delivered Paul and Timothy and He taught them not to trust in themselves but in the God who raises the dead. But don't discount the pressure. The despair. They thought death was near and all their strength was gone. It reminds me of a missionary to Burma, Adoniram Judson. We call that country now Myanmar. But Judson, for about ten years, was laboring in Burma with his wife, Anne, to learn the language, to translate the Scriptures, and to preach Christ. And in those ten years of ministry, the growth that he saw was microscopic. Adoniram and Anne saw... Eighteen converts in ten years. That is slow growth. And then war broke out between Britain and Burma and any English speaker was viewed to be a spy. Adoniram was suddenly seized and imprisoned for the next seventeen months. He would spend most of his nights hoisted up by his feet on a bamboo pole with his head and shoulders lying on the ground and his feet completely exposed in the air to be ravaged by mosquitoes. Anne, though pregnant at the time and then later caring for a baby, would walk two miles every day to plead for mercy at the palace for her husband. She eventually got a little bit of freedom for him, but it was only freedom to walk around in the courtyard. After 17 months, Adoniram was released, but only a few months later, Anne, with her health broken, From her sacrifice, she died. And then the baby died as well. The psychological effects of these losses on Judson were devastating. Now, in four years' time, after all this season of distress, God is going to pour out His Holy Spirit in an awakening in Burma with many, many souls converted. But that's four years in the future. And right now, Judson is a shattered man. Wondering if God's love has been separated from me. He writes this God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. You ever been there? That God seems just so distant to you. It could be that you have found your way into the midst of tribulations and distresses and you've wondered, Lord, where are you? Has your love vanished? in the midst of the pain that I feel, or the ravages of the fall upon my body as my soul is racked with inner distress and I'm downcast and darkness seems to surround me, does this mean you've just gone away? What about persecution? It's a generic noun here for persecution. And together with the corresponding verb to persecute, It can include everything from insult, slander, and false accusations, to imprisonments, and flogging, and even pursuing you to death. In Egypt, about 10 years ago, there was a prominent Muslim on his Islamic channel who boasted of being able to eliminate Egypt's Christians in two days. And he was trying. They are to blame the Christians for all the sectarian violence in the country, he said. The man then mocked Christ and mocked Christianity. Just a week prior to this announcement, a Christian was arrested for allegedly insulting Islam. And since 2011 in Egypt, hundreds of professing believers have been slaughtered. Does this mean the love of Christ is lost to them? What about famine or nakedness, which is next on Paul's list? Over the last few years, Nigerian believers have been ravaged by conflict because of Islam. And as those difficulties unfold, they are presently facing ongoing food shortages and a lack of adequate clothing. Does that mean that the love of Christ has disappeared? Is the Lord blind to their needs? Or what about danger? This is a broad word that means danger of any sort. It's famously the word Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 11, how he's been in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brethren. Eight times he says, I've been in danger. But Paul's asking here, is there any danger? Environmental? national, geographical, physical, whatever you can come up with, is there any danger that will be the thing that will rip me away from the love of God in Christ? And it would seem with Paul's sweeping summary here that all the ground has been covered. Paul himself has actually experienced all of these things. And he could testify that the love of Christ has been with him through it. But then there's one final word that goes beyond his present experience. What about the sword? This is the sword that the state bears. Is judicial execution proof that Christ's love has been retracted? Maybe no difficulty in this life can do it, but the sentence of death followed by execution, does that actually put a space between me and the Lord? Now we know that Paul is reaching the climax of his argument and his goal is to give believers the most sure-footed assurance possible. But brethren, when we read these would-be separators, we should shudder at their horror because these things are no exaggeration. Paul quotes Psalm 44 verse 22 to prove that. Verse 36 of our text, again quoting Psalm 44, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This Old Testament quotation indicates that Old Testament believers were suffering just as New Testament believers are. Suffering, as a believer, is not an aberration. It's the norm. But in Psalm 44, God's people are suffering while they're doing what pleases God. And that invites even more questions, doesn't it? As the devil looks and he says to you, look, if Christ loved you, He would not let this happen to you. How can you possibly believe that you're justified if tribulation squeezes you and internal distress confines you? How is Jesus praying for you if you are persecuted, hungry, naked, and in constant danger? The devil looks at our lives and our trouble and says, you are a walking contradiction and you'll die alone. How do we meet that? Well, Paul now speaks with a hammer of truth to squash the devil's lies. See you with me secondly. The love that conquers. The love that conquers. Verse 37, No, in all these things, We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Paul's list of potential threats climaxes in what one scholar has called a triumphant denial. While tribulation, distress, and so forth, reaching all the way to to death, seem to be the very essence of defeat. They seem to be the quintessential proof that Christ's love has been severed, and therefore the love of God is proven variable, variable, changing, unstable. On the contrary, Paul says, we have overwhelming victory. And using the strongest contrast in the Greek language, Paul says literally, but in all these things, yes, in every encounter with adversity, we overwhelmingly conquer. Now some... Bible translations like the ESV retain an older perspective on this verb. We are more than conquerors. That doesn't quite capture the power of Paul's language. The victory he describes is superlative. It's exceptional. It's overwhelming. We all know we may be in a battle that is scarcely won. And surely if we're being trolled, that we conquer in circumstances like tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, our natural inclination would be to think, well, we had victory, but it was a slight one. It's a victory in view of many casualties, right? Victory admits great and heart-wrenching loss. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul does not say we face the forces of darkness and we narrowly escape by the skin of our teeth we win. No, he says in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. That's the language of a rout, of a beatdown with adversaries utterly vanquished. Now how can that be in light of the evidence? How can Christians be used for torches in Nero's gardens? And we have an overwhelming victory. How can a slave girl in the 2nd century named Blandina be thrown to the wild beasts? How can that be a crushing triumph? How can an 86-year-old man, Polycarp, being burned at the stake, be proof that we win? How can 283 executions under Bloody Mary be evidence that we don't just sort of win? We have a routing victory. It doesn't appear that way, does it? It certainly doesn't appear that way to the enemies of the Gospel. We don't have to use death as an example. We just have to look at the weakness of our own body. Think of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. you remember how he describes God gave him a thorn in the flesh? A messenger of Satan, he describes it. God's purpose is for Paul not to exalt himself, but to look to the Lord. But what's the devil's purpose? God gave me a messenger of Satan to torment me. The devil is out for his destruction. That is always the intent, brethren, of our adversaries, to move us away from Christ and devour us. Satan doesn't want merely Job to die. He wants Job to curse God and die. That's always the devil's aim. And yet here we see an overwhelming victory. God's enemies have a scheme to cut us off from Jesus. And they will try any tactic, employ any brutality, they will use what is available in the sinful world, decay, sickness, and death, or they will use other means, persecutions, deprivations, and so forth. But the goal is always the same. To rip you away from Jesus. And yet Paul says, we overwhelmingly conquer in the midst of all of these wretched things. And it's not because we're strong. It's not because we're physically imposing. It's not because we're mentally tough to withstand torture, we have no inherent superiority at all. We overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. This unquestionably is pointing to Christ's love, but I want you to notice the tense of the verb. Through Him who loved us. Paul is pointing to a definitive moment in time when the love of Christ was displayed. And when was that time? He was at the cross. Now, by no means is Paul suggesting that Jesus' love is confined to that one point in the past. No, Jesus died. Jesus rose. Jesus is presently interceding for us. That is proof of active love. And Paul has even framed the question in verse 35, who shall separate us, literally, from the ongoing love of Christ? That's a reminder to us that Christ's love keeps going and going and going. Nevertheless, there was a decisive moment in redemptive history when we all were without strength, when we were conducting ourselves as enemies of God, where we were dead in our sin. And at that moment, the intensity of Christ's love was exhibited to us. At the cross, we see the pinnacle of the proof of the love of God the love of the Father to give his Son the love of the Son to willingly go to the cursed tree for our salvation, the love of the Spirit to empower the incarnate Son to go to the cross and apply the work of Christ to our hearts. But brethren, what did the death and resurrection of Jesus mean with respect to all these things that seem to tear us away from Christ's love? Well, Christ's death and resurrection secured for us not temporal victory but an eternal victory. Jesus conquered death, sin, hell, and the devil. He triumphed over the authorities and powers. Jesus cleansed our debt of sin. He took our certificate of debt. This is the language of Colossians 2. He took our certificate of debt with all the list of decrees against us. This is much worse than Satan's list of all the things you've done. I mean... Maybe that's not too far off. Of Santa's list. Of all the things that you've done wrong. You realize that the that whole thing is a blasphemous idea. The Lord took that list of everything that you've done. Things you know about. Things you have no idea to even think about. And He took that list and He nailed it to the cross. The power, therefore, the accuser would use to berate and accuse us is now broken. The devil attacks our bodies, yes, because he has nothing to bring against our soul. And he unleashes vigorous assaults on our possessions, aiming to deprive us of things, but the triumph of God's grace claiming us as forgiven, as beloved, as the saints of God who are the treasures of grace that has rung out at the cross. Herein is love, and it is love unchangeable. So Paul can say, being assured by Jesus about that whole thorn issue, Jesus told him, My grace is sufficient for you for My power. That is resurrection power. The power of life emanating from the love of the risen Christ. That power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of My weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon Me. Jesus has told us in this world, You have tribulation. That's a hard fact. Difficulties surround us and they're ongoing. But Jesus went on to say, take heart. I have overcome, or maybe stronger, I have conquered the world. By Jesus' death and resurrection, He has made the world's opposition pointless to the believer. Our enemies can rage all they want What can they do? Nothing. The battle has been decisively won. And if we are in Christ, we share in His overwhelming victory. And that's why we rejoice. That's how we know we are not defeated. We're not severed from divine love. In the face of suffering and difficulty, a fallen world and decaying flesh, we have the victory because of the love of God in Christ. Dear friends, do you believe that? Are your hearts focused on the unchanging power of Christ's love and the security that it brings? Are you resting in what Jesus has done for you? His love unto you, to use Owen's word I've used before. Are you eyeing this love? Or Do you fix your focus upon it? What kind of security does that love give you? Well, Paul, in closing, waxes eloquent in verses 38 and 39. And with a personal note, to remove all shadow of doubt that we can't be cut off, see finally with me the impossibility of separation. Verses 38 and 39 are an emphatic way to assert that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ. Paul makes a list of ten things, four pairs, two single items, which may stir fear in the believer's heart. And he begins by saying, for I am sure, or I am confident, I am persuaded. This is Paul's personal, settled conviction rooted in what has happened at the cross. And of what is Paul firmly convinced? Namely, that Christ's love is invincible. But he illustrates it. For I am sure first that neither death nor life. Now that death will be on the list is no surprise to us. God's people were in slavery to the fear of death all of our lives, but Jesus liberated us. And the king of terrors still threatens, but we believe the victory we have in Christ. But what is surprising here is that life is listed as a threat. How is life a threat to us? Well, life brings many dangers, toils, and snares. Paul has been mentioning the perils of life. And then what of the seductions of pleasure or money or possessions. Death could be a welcome release from the snares of life. But Paul's point here is throughout all of life, with its ups and downs, with its vacillating circumstances all the way to the grave, Christ's love doesn't change. We're rising and falling all the time, but His love is constant. We pass through modes of existence, but His love is steady. Then we move on to not angels nor rulers. Now since Paul set up a contrast previously, that's probably what he's doing here. And the contrast, I think, is between good angels and evil angels. The word rulers, you should echo from Ephesians 6.12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this present darkness. These are evil forces. Recognizing demons as a threat isn't difficult, at least in the abstract, because we don't see them. We're in a spiritual war, and these hostile powers will come against us, but they won't have ultimate success. But what about the threat of angels? And this is good angels. In what way could they be a threat? It's probably due to the idolatry of the first century where some folks worshipped angels or sucked into speculation about angels as those who give you grace rather than seeing the centrality of Jesus. You can read about this in Colossians and Hebrews in particular. But Paul's saying, look, nothing's going to tear you away from God's love in Christ. And then he gives a third pair. Neither things present nor things to come. We often fear that something in the present, a specific right now trial will tear us away from Jesus. Or we fear that some unknown future event will occur that's going to radically affect us and rip us away from Christ. Now, we we all know the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Jesus told us, the one who endures to the end, He will be saved. But we remember here the preservation of the saints. How do we persevere? How do we fight, run, strive, wrestle, keep pressing ahead? It's not because we're strong and mighty. It's because God lovingly worked to begin a work in us and He will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Further, it's because of Christ's love being unchangeably with us that we have the hope of endurance. We're going to sing this in a minute, but Psalm 23, you remember how it ends. Surely, goodness and mercy, chesed, surely covenant love, will, soft translation follow, is pursue, will pursue me. That mercy, that covenant love will pursue me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. The reason nothing in the future will tear you away from Christ's love is because God's love in Christ is unbreakable. It is utterly unchangeable. His love will not let you go. You don't have to fear the future believer. And some of you live in a glass house of fear. Break it down. Christ has given you hope even in the midst of every distress in this life. You have nothing to fear because Jesus has secured you. He holds on to you. But then Paul adds, neither will power separate you. It's hard to know what's in view here, but the word is used for both forces that are spiritual and miracles. It may well be further personal agents of evil coming after you, but you're being assured you are protected from that. And then Paul climaxes with another contrast, height nor depth. Height probably includes anything in the spatial universe from heaven to hell that I might view as threatening and just in case Paul might have missed something. The one thing unmentioned you think might be the thing to separate you from Jesus. So he adds, nor anything else in all creation. In other words, there is no loophole. You can't be the one who proves this wrong. There is no being in all creation, visible or invisible, which has the capacity to overthrow the strength of the bond, the loving union which our God attaches us to in Christ Jesus. Now, you have to understand, Paul could have just said in Romans 8, nothing can separate you, and stopped. But He didn't do it that way. He intended to be forceful, insistent, ardent about it with ten things to emphasize completeness. And His vigorous language amps up to that last phrase. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Note the source of the love. It's not just the love of Christ, verse 35. It's here the love of the Father. It was the Father's love demonstrated at the cross. And in the midst of all of our tribulations, the love of the Father has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit He has given to us. So Paul is here uniting the love of the Father and the love of the Son to save and secure the people of God. The triune God has a force of love to ensure every soul redeemed by the blood of Jesus will reach glory. And nothing can stop that from happening. Yet even as Paul brings in the love of the Father, he does strike a note of exclusivity and you should see it. The love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is only one way to know the love of God, which is unchangeable and eternally securing, overwhelming every threat. And it's in Christ. Love displayed in Christ. And friend, if you're here this morning, you're not in Christ. You haven't fled your sins and repented by turning to the Lord Jesus. You have no security in the midst of all these dreadful things. What a horrible state that would be. That should be a reason for you to cause your soul to reflect deeply this morning. To turn to the friend of sinners, the Lord Jesus, who came to seek and save the lost. Because without Him, you have no future and no hope. But if you are in Him, you are loved and loved forever. If you're here this morning, and you're already in Christ, let the assurance of what Paul is saying wash over you. No matter the hardship you face, no matter the difficulties squeezing you or the world that assaults you or the devil that accuses you, absolutely nothing. No thing. Not a person. Not a situation. And believe this, not even you with your own folly can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has an iron grip of love on our souls. So take courage and rejoice. Lavish, unchangeable love has been poured out upon you. May God give us all grace to believe the truth and to live like we believe it. May He help us. Let's pray together. Lord, we... Stand astounded at what You tell us in Your Word that the living God could love sinners. And more than that, to give Your own Son for our redemption and then to promise us that we are secure. O Lord, who are we? Who are we that You would do this for us? And yet, O Lord, we, we stand astounded and marvel. We repent of our unbelief our fears and anxieties. Father, we pray that You would engage our hearts by the power of the Spirit to believe the words that You have spoken. And we pray that we would find ourselves steadied so that we can be steadfast and immovable in this world of trouble because we cling to Christ Jesus in whose name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.